Hello and welcome to Season 3 of the E3 Podcast. I'm your host, Emily Mottram. This podcast is all about building science, healthy homes, architecture, and female entrepreneurship. So prepare to get nerdy. So welcome back to this week's episode of the podcast. I'm really excited to be doing another homeowner interview on the podcast. Again, not my homeowner, uh, doing another interview with Bob Swinburne's clients who have graciously agreed to come on the podcast and tell us about their experience, what it's like building and all kinds of exciting things that have led them to their projects. So welcome Blanche. Tell us who you are and what you've been up to. Hey, yeah, I am Blanche. Um, I am uh, from Tennessee originally, and I'm making my way to uh, Vermont permanently now. Um, I have been farming in the Midwest for the past five or so years. And um, last year during the pandemic, I was actually sugaring out this way. And um, when everything got shut down, I realized why would I ever want to be in the Midwest you know, in a situation like this, um, I would much rather be in a place where I could be self-sufficient. Um, and so I um, managed to find land before land prices skyrocketed um, in Vermont. And I got um, 50 acres in this little village called East Barnard um, on the east side of the state, um, right by the New Hampshire border. Um, and it's an old farmhouse that's been uh, pretty much not lived in for 40 years. Um, so lots and lots to take on there. Um, and a lot of the issues, it looks fine from the outside, which is very confusing. Um, and from the inside as well, in so many ways, but a lot of the issues there are very, I guess the great, great word for it is insidious. So, you know, it's more of a mouse house than a people house for 40 years. And that leads, leaves some very strange smells and lots of, you know, damage and that kind of thing. Um, huge moisture and mold issues. It's basically an open air house. You can poke your finger through uh, the windowsills and be outside, you know, through all the rot and that kind of thing. Um, no foundation on part of the house. Chimneys are toast. Um, so for me to wrap my mind around renovations, it's just not something that's in the card right now. So what I'm working on currently is a really wonderful, um, uh, cottage project to be, um, basically to add to this little, um, about acre, uh, compound living site. It's 50 acres in total, but this, there's a little corner. It's about an acre. Um, and I'm working with Bob Swinburne um, to do this uh, little cottage guest house um, that one day I hope will um, be a place where my mom lands um, as she ages and spends time with me and my sister, who's actually eight minutes down the road. So um, that's why I reached out to Bob um, to do this work is to kind of dream with me um, into reality, this little guest house. You're living the, the true Vermont dream, right? You live in a leaky old farmhouse that's probably freezing in the winter time. And you went, I need something that is completely the opposite of whatever this is. Um, so not only are you, you know, you reach out to Bob because of the type of work that Bob does. Bob does a lot with high performance and, and using local materials and thinking, uh, outside of the box, I would say, but you also had really specific goals. And one of the reasons I'm really excited to talk about uh, your project with you is that you've decided that you're going to research and use hempcrete, which is a new-ish or newer product that a lot of people are really curious about. And so I'd love to hear more about the research and why you decided to go in that direction. Mm -hmm. Sure. Um, so I guess I'll back up a little bit and um, tell you about some of my first meetings, which kind of precipitated this hempcrete conversation um, with Bob. Um, Bob, one of the first times I met him was on a different site and he told me about you and Michael Maines. Um, pretty much one of the first things he said was just he, how much he treasured uh, y'all's friendships. Um, but he also, you know, kind of alluded to the fact that um, the folks that work with him, his clients, they will change their mind about what they envision. One of the clients that I interviewed of his 
um, as I was like making the decision, I had already decided to go with Bob. I mean, anybody with Bob's big barn and fern house and who steps onto a site and says, oh, this is a great sledding hill <laughs> or like the swing can go here. Like you've got me hook, line and sinker. Like his playful spirit is just, you know, and his and the fact that he's bulletproof about what he does is why I went with him. Um, but I talked with one of his clients and he said, you know, the project is completely different from what we imagined. And I heard that and I heard what Bob said. And, you know, I'm a little Taurus, the stubborn little bull, right? And I'm like, no, like, I know what I want. And I just want Bob to make it a reality and to do it really well. Um, and then he told me about the book, New Carbon Architecture. And so I started reading New Carbon Architecture and thinking about, you know, my carbon footprint more, which is definitely something I've been thinking about. But then it got to hempcrete. And I was like, shoot, like now, like I'm, I'm not thinking about a quick little build anymore. I'm thinking about, well, how, how can I make basically a compostable house, you know? And, um, and so what, cause in Vermont, you know, and I, I hesitate to say we're doing something so new and unique because we are in a natural building, but also in Vermont, natural building is just a thing. You know, there's lots of timber framers, um, really cool folks um, doing straw bale construction, um, lots of really beautiful plaster artists and that sort of thing. So um, we're, we're doing something new with Hempcrete, um, but it was kind of me wanting to explore natural building. Um, and I also am someone who suffers from uh, crazy allergies. Uh, I, um, and want, to the extent that folks, when I go to the hospital, get tested, they'll call back and say, you have the highest grass allergies that we've ever seen, which is great because I just decided to move to Vermont and become a grass farmer. So, you know, those things. Um, so I was, I was thinking about straw bale. I was just like, this is amazing. And also what happens if it's compromised and if it's moldy, which I'm allergic to too. And then I have this huge house of straw and which I'm allergic to and mold, which I'm allergic to. And I was like, okay, there has to be a better way. And so I found hempcrete and, um, and it's, you know, all the catchwords, it's fireproof, it's, you know, mold resistant, it's insect resistant, it's got this thermal mass. It may not have like a, the R value that maybe Genspack cellulose can bring to um, an insulation or kind of envelope. Um, but it also has moisture kind of retention and regulation capabilities that are really great. And so I just, I saw this and I locked onto this and then my little Taurus self came out and I was like, no, like we're not doing anything but this. And it took Bob and my builder um, a while to understand that I'm not gonna change my mind. Um, they kept coming back to, yeah, dense pack cellulose is what we know and it's easy. And, you know, Bob's done that with Larson Trust. <laughs> and, and every time I would just be like, well, what about hempcrete? And eventually my builder, who's wonderful, um, was just like, Blanche, we just need you to say whether you want to do this or not. And I was like, how have I not been more clear in this situation? And then, you know, Bob was absolutely wonderful. And just finally was like, okay, it's time to move this forward. And so um, we began to move this forward. And I, I feel like it was just a huge win on my part because I know nothing really about uh, uh, building science or high performance buildings. Um, but I am fairly intuitive and, and kind of pick on, pick out uh, what the benefits of something can be pretty easily. And once Bob got into it, one of my favorite phone calls with him was he said, Blanche, like, you know, I'd assume there would be holes. Like with straw bale, there are holes. There's no holes to this. And I was like, yes, like I got him on board. And so um, I think for him, it had always been, um, this very side interest that he hadn't had an opportunity um, to really dive into. And now that we pulled the trigger, um, and because like you said, it's such a new, um, new way of natural building, uh, and he's recognizing that it has been largely owner-led, um, 
that there's a huge uh, place for like detailing and, and work that Bob can provide is like, you know, the uh, um, kind of this pioneer architect leading the way. And granted, there are other architects in the US who have done this, um, but perhaps not with the enthusiasm or the networking or the, the drive to share knowledge the way that Bob does. So um, that's a little bit of an overview of how we got there of just really thinking about my health and creating a healthy home and um, really not wanting uh, to, I guess I think about it in terms of like, um, there are two metaphors that come to mind a little bit of like one, I, I also have, have very bad allergies and I also have some dietary restrictions. And, and I think of, of hempcrete as kind of like this great cinnamon roll I had the other day that was like egg-free, soy-free, you know, wheat-free, it's just free-free. Like, like hempcrete is kind of proof-proof. Like it's just, you know, it has everything that you kind of want in a space. Um, and a lot of great properties that I think we'll see over time. Like I, I don't think a hempcrete home will get as hot as maybe a really high performance home has the potential to do so with a wood stove, right? Um, and so, but also I think about it as like when I go to the grocery store and like I look at, uh, you know, nutrition labels, when things are highly processed and when there are words that I begin to not understand, I put it back on the shelf. And that's kind of how I feel about this wall system that we're going to create. Like everything I understand, like I could grow hempcrete and I haven't, well, I think Bob and I have talked about this a little bit, but I have a great field. And quite frankly, when we do the renovation, all the hemp herds could theoretically be grown in my field um, to do the insulation for the farmhouse moving forward. Um, and so it's just hemp, it's lime, it's wood, it's lime plaster, and that's it. Um, so that's huge for me is that it is so elemental um, and can be highly local and for to be able to kind of push the envelope a little bit um, and show folks what's possible, especially in a high performance building community, um, I think excites everyone. Well, and um, one of my favorite things, and I don't remember if it's in the new carbon architecture book or if it was just something that maybe Jacob Ruskusen or Chris Magwood said at some time was that, you know, we grow enough straw across the U.S. to insulate every house with straw bales, but, but we aren't doing that. And so when you're talking here about hempcrete, you also think like hemp grows in so many places and it's something that we could use and we use certain parts of it for insulation and can we use other parts for ropes but um i also uh, have some dietary restrictions as well and i was just thinking about this the other day about reading the nutrition labels and how we really try to you know not that everybody does read the nutrition labels but at least they're on the things that we eat right that's not the same case with our building materials. And, you know, I had a client who had a severe petroleum allergy. So we had to try to cut plastic out of every part of a building, you know, environment. Well, that's really hard when you have to look up, like, what is the ingredient list of every single thing that you have to put in there? Now, granted, we didn't end up taking out all of the plastic, um, Per the usual, budget is always the kind of final restricting factor on, you know, what you what you can and can't do. But we eliminated plastic and glues out of a significant portion of the building, which for me was then just another eye opener and saying, well, okay, now we're thinking about this interior environment. We're building tighter structures. We're providing ventilation. We just don't not do ventilation anymore. It's, it's just not a good idea. Um but dilute, having to dilute all of these things that don't come with, you know, building nutrition labels and on the BS and beer show and in our discussion groups and stuff, I've said like, when people go into a, a, a lumber yard or a, you know, a big box store or whatever, wouldn't it be great if every material also had a nutrition label on it? Like what's in this stuff? Like what, what are these things? And it would be, it would be so cool. Like what's in the stuff that you get. So we talk a lot about ventilation, especially in this last year, ventilation has become a, a really hot point in our industry to talk about like what's really going on inside our homes. And 
I love this idea of the natural building materials that just have a lot less stuff in it. Like what is all the extra stuff for, right? Like, what do we need it for? What, why do we have it? And then super localized. I say this um, all the time when I get to talk to all of Bob's lovely clients that I'm jealous about Vermont's attitude towards natural building. Like, Mm -hmm. You know, you talk lumber yards or whatever, you don't just have access to, you know, a big store where you go and you buy it. Like you go to your local Sawyers and say, I need board sheathing. I need two by fours. I need. And so the connection to the people who are locally producing the materials um, has helped for cost escalation in the last year, right? Because they're, it's local, they're not shipping it, it's not manufactured, it's not processed. But they're also, they're there, right? They have a direct to you connection. You know, there aren't 16 steps to get product A to you at store B, you know? And the the mindset in Vermont has always been like, well, we'll try it, right? Like, this is natural. This grows here. This is, you know, and then you look at the people who took straw and aside from you know, for a long time, we always said, oh, you know, it's too susceptible to water. Like what are, you know, we can't do that here in New England. And they, they took it and they built panels out of it. And they said, hey, here's a way that everyday users can build straw buildings without having to do the, here's the straw bale and here's how you mud it. And here's how you put it together and, and all of that, which works great in some drier climates and is still a great way to do it. But it makes it available, I would say, to to more people to in in a way that everyday building industries can understand. Like, okay, these panels are thicker, sure, but they go together like you know building blocks. And so, to take something that's a natural building material, flip it on its side, and say, okay, we're gonna do it in a way that's easy to understand. Like, it'll be so cool when hempcrete gets to that point too. Um, because right now, um, and I don't know if this will be true and it'd be so cool to see all the details that you guys come up with, you know, on your project. But my understanding of hempcrete is, you know, like you said, very homeowner driven, somewhat still labor intensive on how you put the material together and reminds me of the interview that I did with Molly Bell on Adobe structures, right. Is Adobe used to be the homeowner, how you built it, cost-effective way that made sense. It was a local material. It was easy to access. They made their own bricks. They put them together. But now, if you want that look and that feel, you have to pay someone a premium price to do something that is, is labor intensive, you know? And so it's really interesting to see you know, how you'll build your house with hempcrete, how that will transition. We're building, we're growing a ton more hemp in this country. I'm going to need to do things with it. Um, and the fact that we have cellulose, but we don't, we're not reading as many newspapers anymore, right? Like it's recycled content, but when are we going to run out of the content to recycle? And they've tried to do cardboard and they've tried to do other things that hasn't turned itself into the material that they want to be able to use. And then people will complain about the plastic that comes in the cellulose because it got recycled without, you know, and so they'll be looking for that next building material, you know, and they're starting to do that a little bit with wood fiber, you know, mm-hmm. and creating wood fiber into things. But, but then at the same time, it makes you think like, well, wait, now we're making that a first generation product. Like, are, are we recycling it? How's it grown? How do we get that? Wood takes longer to grow that. I mean, hemp is a season crop, right? And so there's just, there's so many cool things about it that are fascinating to how are we going to, to, to take this, this product. And I love that it really is very client led and client driven and that, you, you really had the nerve to just say, no guys, this is what we're doing. Like, I get it's new for you. I get it's a little bit different, but we're going to figure out the details. And so part of that is you picking the right team, which we talk about all the time. And so how did you, I mean, you talked a little bit about, you know, the early on discussions or whatever, and, you know, finding Bob, but you know, like what made them the right team for you? Yeah, that's a great question. 
Um, Because when you were talking and, you know, you're talking about all of these materials that we don't have quote unquote nutrition labels for, one of the most helpful conversations I had was um, with the builder and I'll, I'll, I'll backtrack and, and tell you a little bit how we got to him. So um, Bob, I, Bob was just the right person because he's, Bob. <laughs> um, he's just so, I mean, like I said, he's just, there's a playfulness to him. There's a child, like he just hasn't totally grown up. And um, I, I admit this may be the first house I have built, but my parents built one with a very ego-driven architect and it was his way or the highway. And I wanted nothing to do with that because for me, I'm not gonna be a passive client that says, I want a healthy home, have it kind of be representative of the landscape and what's around local, great, walk away. Um, I'm gonna be very, like, I'm gonna be in the weeds. Um, and uh, if we go with something as crazy as Shoshugi Ban, I might be burning that wood, you know, like um, I'm willing to do that. So um, I think for Bob, it was a really good fit because he's such a teacher and I'm, I'm a learner. And so I think that it's almost like this, uh, you know, wax on, wax off or, or patience, young grasshopper kind of relationship. And so, um, which has been really lovely. And and he actually recommended a builder that was in central Vermont that he worked with because he really values um, uh, relationships like Mendel and Morse and uh, this, you know, continued work and support of these builders that he believes in. And I um, couldn't quite get behind uh, this builder for no other reason than they weren't local. And, um, and they may have been local to Vermont, but it was still about an hour, hour and a half away. And I just didn't love the fact that there were local builders um, who could show up and not be ready to rush off the job site because they have an hour, hour and a half drive till dinner. And to really be able to get to know the local community um, and that was just really important to me. So I began uh, to do some research and I was led to this man, Peter, Peter O'Connor um, with Highland Builders because he, he came up in my research with the old farmhouse, right? So I'm, I'm kind of thinking about restoring this farmhouse, some of the work that has to be done to keep it from deteriorating further until restoration happens. And I got plugged into like Preservation Trust of Vermont and in Windsor County, there's a um, preservation society and they passed Peter's name to me. And um, then I started asking some folks around neighbors and his name came up again. And it was just kind of, he just kept popping up. Um, and I was just like, Bob, you know, I know you wanna go with this other builder because they're familiar, but can we talk to Peter? And Bob talked with Peter and Peter is one of the most lovely uh, humans and, and very intuitive uh, men I have ever kind of met and just really picks up on um, relational dynamics. And, and I feel like he hasn't um, gotten to do a lot of uh, building projects that he is in love with. And because one of the conversations that we had that was so important that I mentioned earlier is that he has was in had to do bamboo flooring and he was just like the off-gassing is awful like um I often have to choose materials that I don't want to work with that aren't beautiful materials to work with um and aren't local and uh that's sad for him and we just had this very like you know big conversation about that and so I think that you know finding him and connecting him with Bob and Bob recognizing that he's ready to take what he does to the next level in terms of natural building was huge. And that's really helped me think about hempcrete and this house because I want this to be a pleasant experience for him. You know, I want him to be excited about the materials that we're using and to not feel like he's having to deal with off-gassing or um, and so far the materials on deck are just really 
Amazing materials and um, very simple. And some masks will be worn because of, you know, lime and kind of mixing of hempcrete. But other than that, it's just really um, very accessible and doable and not processed in a way that it just, it kind of feels like you're in the woods, you're in nature. And so that's been a huge thing is to get both of them on, um, on board and recognizing and having my eyes open to this experience that as a builder, I need to care for him and his health and um, what this experience is like for him because, you know, he's, he has the paintbrush too, and he's making this dream a reality too. And unlike, and, and um, what I, I am doing that I don't think Bob has done often before is I'm actually pulling in um, someone uh, for interiors design as well. So there's this team of four of us um, and uh, the interiors is, is kind of in flux right now and changing a little bit, um, but they're really there to hold uh, my aesthetic desire and, uh, and, and, um, I guess the word would be, um, what is the, uh, kind of spirit of this place? What's the intention of this place? And they're really kind of holding it to, um, and it's been really fun for everyone to get together and work through what is this project and, and, uh, to think about this is really an elemental project and it's really going to be highlighting um, so much of what's local in in ways that I think, you know, is different than Peter's done before. And this is going to be kind of a showcasey piece for him, but not in a showcasey way. It's going to be humble, but also uncompromising and really special. And for um, interiors, it's going to be, we're going to be working and asking them to work with lots of materials that you just can't find in a catalog because I'm going to the brickyard in Waitsfield or we're going to find some salvaged wood in Norwich or that kind of thing. And for Bob, this hempcrete. Um, so I think the best part about this team is everybody's really willing to work with um, what the intention is and to kind of have like Peter's the hands, Bob's the head and in the interiors as it's kind of in flux, like they're the heart in some ways. And I'm just kind of like, okay, like I'm just kind of trying to steer the ship um, in the direction I want it to go. But it's been such a gift to get to know and build this team. Um, and it's really special and it's better than anything I could have imagined. Yeah. Uh, so many important things that you said as part of that conversation there, you know, and, and one that we talk about a lot is really successful project is a three-legged stool. It's the client, it's the design team, and it's the builder and that they're all on board and that they've all bought into what the intention is because projects don't happen without clients. Sometimes they're not successful without a design team. Sometimes they're not successful without a good builder. And so getting everybody on board from the beginning, you know, both is cost effective, right? Because you only have to draw it one time because you know how this builder is going to build it and that they've talked about it and they've done the details or knowing that when you get on site, if there's something that happens that needs to make a change, the builder knows what the design characteristics were, what the intention was that you put forth and can say, okay, well, we have to make this change because we, you know, hit ledge or we, you know, all kinds of things can happen, you know, during construction that they've bought into the idea of what's critically important to you. So they know that when they make the change, there might be 10 ways to do it. And eight of the 10 ways won't follow the intention of what you wanted. And then they're going to call your design team, either your interior designer or Bob or both and say, hey, look, we we can't fit this or we need to do something or we have this you know, thing that came up that especially with a new product we didn't think of. Right. So we didn't know how this was going to interact with this thing. And now we need to um, you know, create a change. And so that's so critical to have everybody who's part of the team, including the client know what the intention is from the beginning and work together as a team. And you're all better for it because everybody brings something to the table. That's an experience that they've had something that they've done on a new way to think about it. And you get a better product in the end, which is awesome. And I love that you 
didn't ignore the sign. He kept popping up and you were like, all right, we have to talk to him, right? Like he just kept coming up. So um, a similar uh, thing, we were trying to find a builder for a client of mine. I was like, oh, hey, this is a builder I've worked with in the past. It's someone I think you should talk to. And he reached out to another company and that company's like, Hey, that project is too far for us, but this is a builder. We think you should talk to who was the same builder that I recommended. And the client's like, all right, I'm, I'm getting it. And then we had a site meeting where they could meet a couple of contractors and they met this builder and they're like, okay, like we, we get it. You know, that we're, we're, we're picking up that sign, but you said something else, which is really critical, which you're going to the extent for, for health reasons, for climate reasons, for everything to build this, you know, really thoughtful structure to then pay a builder to drive an hour and a half to a job site. And every subcontractor they have drive an hour and a half to, or even if they've you know, hired local subcontractors to work with them, they're, they're sending their team. One of the biggest issues in the construction industry as far as carbon is everybody driving a truck to the job site an hour and a half away. And so not only just getting materials locally, like hyper local, right? You want it to be, I think the lead thing is like 500 miles, 500 miles doesn't feel like that's local, but I mean, in some cases that is kind of local, depending on what your material is. Right. But, um, you know, hyper local in your community or whatever, but that builder might have to come to your job site five days a week for, six months, nine months, 12 months, right? And he might have a crew of two or three people. And if they live half an hour apart, then they're not coming together. They're all coming in their own vehicles. And, and yeah, we, we might be moving towards a more electric vehicle, whatever, but we're not there yet, right? So they're all driving some kind of gas vehicle to, to your job site. And some of them more efficient than others, obviously, but and, and maybe, maybe you get somebody who's got a van and goes around and picks everybody up, but you know, the average is, you know, they're coming to the job site and there are some weeks when you have five, 10 people on the job site, you know, the electricians there, the plumbers there, the carpenters are bit there. And you're thinking, I spent all this time to put together this house that was, you know, reducing the carbon or carbon free, or, you know, building a, a better material. And then I paid these guys to drive here every day for an hour and a half. Like it's just, that's it. That's a thing that doesn't, doesn't get thought of as frequently as it should. And then you said something else that I just want to highlight here, which is you said you thought about the builder's health and the materials that he was going to use. And very infrequently do we hear that. And there are a lot of materials that are pretty nasty and, um, you know, need to have special, if you've ever done, you know, lead abatement or asbestos abatement, right. Those, those people are wearing, you know, PPE to, to be, to be careful, but there are a lot of other building materials that don't have nutritional labels that are also not so great for you that these guys are in there. They're, they're sanding it. They're cutting it. They're, they're doing something. It's like, what are we going to find out 10 years down the road was a terrible material that they've developed. And so I appreciate the fact that it, it was a consideration that you had to say, what materials am I using that are going to be an issue? Or I recorded a podcast with a builder who was like, we don't want to do vinyl siding anymore because we have all these end cuts on the vinyl siding for how we did it. And we just have a trash can full that has to go to the dumpster that we know isn't going to break down in, you know, hundreds of years where, you know, we put up a natural unfinished wood siding and we've got end cuts and we can, you know, put it at the end of the driveway and somebody can burn it in their wood stove or we can have a bonfire or we can do whatever. And, you know, I mean, maybe burning stuff isn't the most environmental thing to do either, but like, even if you just threw it in a pit in your backyard, that would turn into, you know, its own version of itself. And so it's interesting how we don't really think about the trash that's accumulated during a build, the health of the builder that has to work in all this stuff. I mean, we're doing a renovation at our own house, right? And there's sheetrock dust in everything, right? It's just everywhere and it's disgusting. And then you think about, I mean, we were wearing masks and everything else, but it's like, 
there are people who do this every day. Like that's their job, right? They put up sheetrock and they, they sand this and like, maybe it's just dust, but you know, you, you create your head, but like what else is in this? And, you know, it's, it's not something we talk a lot about. And it's important, like not only just the indoor air quality and the health of the house that we leave you with after we've left, but the indoor air quality and the health of the people who had to work on it to, to build it was, you know, really important too. So I appreciate that that was a consideration that you had when you were like, okay, wait, what is this material? (laughs) Like, what am I asking them to do? So, and something that you said too, just kind of you know, this hyper local, like, you know, Bob and I sat on, well, we were at the site of where this kind of cottage will go. We were sitting down and I was like, Bob, what do you, what do you want out of this? Because, um, you know, sometimes in, in stories and builds, um, architects and builders, they can just get written out of the story. And so I think for he and I both, it's really about, local and and the story and the relationships about it and something you know that I didn't say before is the property itself is 50 acres 24 or so are um are uh, wooded and in current use and are actually up for um a, a harvest this year and so Peter for the first time my bill there we were um, sitting on uh, some cedar board that my neighbors at the sawmill, which my local sawmill is uh, about 500 yards away. They're like my, my next door neighbors. Um, and uh, <laughs> they had, I had had a cedar, a huge cedar was like literally growing into the house. Like you can see like the trunk on the roof kind of thing, um, like the, the indention that it's left. And so I had to have that taken down last year. And this winter, uh, they cut it into, they did two inch boards for me. So now um, one day I came back, it was like Christmas because I have this huge pile of wood chips by the barn and it, that appeared. And then they just dropped off without asking like the cedar board. And so it was just a surprise. I don't say without asking because I didn't appreciate it. It was like, I felt like it was Christmas day, you know, kind of thing. I'm so excited. Well, that same day was when I met my builder for the first time in person, you know, cause that's a thing during the pandemic. And, um, and we were just sitting on the cedar board and talking and um, sure enough, one of the, we call them boys, even though they're in their fifties or sixties who, you know, walk, who work the sawmill and because their father who owns it is 101 and um, his sons run it. And one of the sons, Clay was walking down the road with his adopted greyhound and uh, we stopped to talk and I wanted to introduce him to Peter because Peter really wants to get to know them, see what woods they have to offer. And I said, without, you know, consulting Bob or Peter, I just said, just flat out, I said, Clay, like if every wood we use in this place can come from you, so be it. Like, that's what I want. Um, and I mean, we might use some salvaged wood, so I'll, I'll leave a little room for that, right? Um, but in his response was, well, we can go in and get some pine from your wood and then just kind of mill it up. And that's what I want. Like, you know, like, and so um, that's how local it is. It's like, it's going to literally be like, a, I don't know what that would be, like maybe a 750 square foot little square. <laughs> Like we're going 150 feet into the forest to cut down pine, to drag it another 150 feet to the sawmill and then to just cart it down the road. I mean, I guess I could ask for um, a horse and cart to move it to reduce carbon footprint even further. (laughs) I mean, we're pretty great at this point. And so it's been really fun to think about what hyper-local means because there's really no excuse not to do that. Um, and we're also, or I, I'm really exploring, like what, what it look like, um, to do, um, I know you talk about no structures, maintenance free, but what are some alternative, um, siting options that can require less maintenance, maintenance? Like, can we avoid paint altogether? Can we, can we do untreated siding? Um, if we do untreated siding, can we do pine? 
how can we get pine as the siding? Should we do pine tar? And should we do pine tar that's black or pine tar that's natural? Um, or should we do shoshugi ban? And does that work well with pine? So like, because I wanna see a house that's completely clad in wood from the forest. And um, that's what I wanna see. And so we'll see what happens, um, but it's just really fun to think about that and think about how safe those materials would be. If it was shoshugi ban, that's fire. If it was pine tar, it's pine tar with a natural pigmentation, that's it. And I can do that. Um, so it's just been really fun to think about those things. And then also think about hempcrete because that's completely different. The hemp herds we would be purchasing are not local. There are few, I think Pennsylvania, they may have um, be producing some hemp curds now or hemp herds now, hemp curds, I'm like still thinking as a Midwesterner in Wisconsin, you know, the cheese curds. Um, and, uh, but the best hemp herds available are from France. And so there's a little bit of me that's like, we're going to be uncompromisingly local and we're local isn't good enough. We have to look to who are doing, who's doing it better. And a lot of those folks are, you know, in Europe. I mean, hempcrete has been done, you know, I think, what was it? The seventies was kind of when it started taking off. So it's really been in Europe. You see it more in the last 20 years, maybe or so. Um, and, you know, looking to that and looking to them and not being afraid to, to say, okay, you know, maybe not everything here is local, but we found the best and we want to show that as an example of what's possible here. I mean, like the wood burning stoves I'm looking at are from Finland and Norway, just because they do it better. Like, you know, like I, you know, and so it's just interesting that this is, for me, it's this kind of balance of incredibly hyper-local, all, if we choose to do masonry, all wood, all stone will be lo local representative. I mean, I'm thinking rough sawn, pine wood floor that's not precious and getting a local blacksmith to do the nails. Like that's how crazy I'm going, right? Um, because it's there, like that's possible. And, um, but then also like, how can we just push the envelope further? Because we're just behind in a lot of um, natural building and eco-friendly um, ways of doing things in this in the states in so many ways. Um, so that's been huge on my mind. Well, and I think you bring up a, a valid point too there, which um, was something that I didn't consider as much um, prior to doing this last year with BS and beer is other parts of the country too, right? So like you have access to, I mean, 500 yards, it really can't get any closer than that, your local sawmill. But there are parts of the country where wood is incredibly expensive, right? And maybe it's the right choice, but they have to get it from somewhere where it grows. But then they can look to their local market and say, but what is local here? You know, just like the Adobe um, out in New Mexico, right? That's local. Maybe they need to bring in some wood or some something else that, or, or, I mean, like you said, we're behind in some of these technologies. Every country has something to bring to the challenge of it, you know, and being in the building science world is like, you know, mechanical systems and some of that stuff, like we're just behind on, on doing that. Cause that hasn't been how our country is, is run or because we have, um, you know, we just have different climate zones, right? We, we don't do that everywhere. Like they do, you know, Germany has a very similar climate zone in the whole part of it. And so they can kind of adopt something that says, this is what makes sense here. And then jump on that bandwagon. Right. And then make that part of it. Um, and so there are things that other countries are just they're doing so much better than we are. You know, I mean, even if you look at, if you're going to put in a mini split, right. Mitsubishi and Fujitsu, right? They were not, <laughs> that does not say United States. <laughs> so, so like there are some things or, or European tilt turn windows. I think our window manufacturers are getting there. They're, they're starting to get it, but you know, five to 10 years ago, we were selling the same window to everyone in the United States, right? 
-hmm. It didn't matter if you were in a heating climate that really needed a higher solar heat gain so that you could get summer, you know, so you could get sun warmth in the winter time. It was like the same low E window. And it's like, well, that's not the best scenario here or, you know, and so starting to get on board with, you know, how these things work, what they do, you know, and they just, they've been doing it for so long that to buy a double pane window in Europe, it's going to cost you more money, which seems crazy, but they have, I don't want to say perfected, but they've gotten so much better at this technology. And there are just some things they're still doing better than us. And they're still worthwhile. But then you say like, this wood was grown on my site. It was milled next door. It has carbon storing potential to offset some of the things that I need to get from somewhere else because it's, it's how it's done. And, you know, maybe those hemp herds are going to become something that's grown more locally as it becomes more popular. I mean, it's the same with solar panels. 10 years ago, you only put solar panels on your roof if you had a lot of money or you were desperate to be totally off grid. And there was just, there were so few people. And then all of a sudden, other places started making solar, uh, you know, manufacturing the panels, the PV arrays, and the tide totally flipped. It totally changed. It made it possible for people to do it. And so once those technologies catch on, same with the electric car industry, you know, when only one manufacturer is making electric cars, it's like they had to push past, get people to buy into the idea. And now you look at Ford Motor Group, who says, we're pushing to be all electric by I can't remember if it was 2030 or 2050, uh, you know, that, that they're just, they're going in on it and saying, Hey, we're going to do it, but they needed somebody to start it. Right. So you might have to get some stuff from France, from Europe, from Canada, from other places to get where you need to. And then one of the things that I kind of love about it is, you know, that you said this is going to be a, a published project for your builder or whatever, but like, you guys are going to talk about it. You're talking about it here on the podcast. Bob's going to talk about it and post pictures about it. Your builder is going to talk about it. People are going to start hearing it. And that's how these things catch on that people start asking for it, that we start getting funding to make some of this stuff happen, which is part of what's really challenging in our building environment is like, we spend a ton of money to produce a lot of petroleum based products, mm -hmm. we've been building with natural materials for a long time. I mean, people used to put stuff together with rocks, right. And then they were like, Oh man, like, okay, the wind's blowing through here. We're going to put stuff, you know, and like, we could have spent that same money to push forward our natural building products, but we didn't exactly choose to do that. And that they're generally funded by smaller companies who don't have a lot of extreme capital to make it move forward. And they got to wait 10 years until the code says it's okay to use this material. You know, it's a, it just takes people like you, people like Bob, people like your builder to say, okay, yeah, we're going to do this. We're going to try it. And then we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about what went well. We're going to talk about the pitfalls so that the next person can avoid these, you know, challenges. Like maybe it took twice as long to build something because you didn't fully understand all of the stuff. And you're like, okay, now we know we're going to share this. We're going to say, Hey, this detail could get better if we would have done X, Y, or Z. And so I applaud you for, for really standing, uh, for, for what you were like, no, this is what I want to do. Let's figure it out. Because, you know, you talked about, you know, what made a, a good, a good builder and a good architect and your choice to, to put together that team. But it also is part of what makes a good client is just kind of saying like, I'm willing to work with you to work through those details, to figure that out. So, you know, your, your willingness to say, okay, I get this is a new technology, but it's what I want to do. So let's figure it out. How do we figure it out? And that's how we change that adversarial relationship that, like you said, the architect gets, you know, value engineered out or the, you know, the client steps back and says, I just want a comfortable home or whatever is, you know, everybody coming together and saying, you know, this is always kind of like problem solving. It's not problem solving, but it's like, we have this thing and we have to figure it out as opposed to, you know, like, Oh no, we don't know how to do that. We're not going to do it. We're going to just going to keep doing this the way we've been doing it. Or, 
you know, like, oh, finger pointing out, you didn't detail that, or you didn't build that the way I detailed it or whatever, you know? And so, um, it's really exciting to, to see everybody getting behind the intention and then saying, okay, cool. How are we going to figure this out? Right. Yeah. And I think one, uh, way and I'm, I'm sorry I, did, I don't know how to turn my computer off from doing the little texting noise um but uh one of the things that gets me really excited is just um this notion of like somebody has to do it first you know a little bit like um and by no means is this the first hempcrete project in the U.S. like there's an amazing they're amazing companies um doing spraycrete um and uh hemp blocks and one of the first hemp cretes in Vermont is just miles away from where I'm gonna be building this but we are choosing to talk about it and that's something that's really exciting um, about this project and you know also just being um, in Vermont and tangential to Maine I think that you know you talked about wood fiberboard and I may be wrong is it go logic who is launching kind of wood fiber board in Maine. Um, and I saw not too long ago that there was, uh, you know, a kind of a political, not rally, but gathering in front of that factory, just announcing that this is a local Maine industry that is pushing forward, um, you know, forms of natural kind of building materials. And, I, and then on the flip side in Vermont, you've got um, Jacob with, I believe, New Village Frameworks. And, you know, they're doing some amazing things uh, working with, um, you know, uh, migrant workers in the dairy industry and building um, panelized straw bale homes to then be healthy, temporary housing. And so you kind of see these like industries where natural buildings can fill holds and just be healthier, um, create healthier environments for everyone. And I just kind of wonder um, as some as a farmer and then also as someone just with eyes kind of open and interested to see how things moving forward of, you know, how could hemp, you know, play a role in, um, in maybe some, you know, economic growth in Vermont or talking about, you know, dairy farmers, you got a lot of land there that could be leased and um and how could that be used and you've also talked about you know panelized straw bale is building blocks well they're literally they're made in france and they're also doing i think in pennsylvania as well but they've literally created oh in canada and um they've created these build hemp building blocks that are literally legos and like and you just are able to insulate a home with legos and then you do kind of a lime you know plaster or do a small layer of um, kind of what you would be using for cast in place or spray or that type of thing. And there's just so many amazing uh, resources out there that just need to be seen and just that people need to not be scared of. And I think that's kind of huge uh, for us and our team of, especially my builders, like this is really unfamiliar. Then we began to meet with a builder who did a hemp Crete House in um, Massachusetts. We are also consulting with a fabulous firm called Hempstone, um, and they're huge and um, going to be highly influential to this project. Um, we began to talk with Shelby, and we began to talk with Jennifer, and Peter was like, this is easy. Like, you can have a hempcrete spray machine that's as simple as anything he's worked with. So it's just, there. you have to take factors into account like it has to dry you know um for weeks but um i think that it's just fun everybody on the team just really wants to make it more approachable yeah and i think that's getting it out there and talking about it is half the battle right like these things exist and he at first was just like a little resistant like i've never done this before i'm not really sure like what is it and then it's all about connecting with the right people and that's something that i try to uh, you know, push across all the time. You don't have to know all the answers. You just need to know who to ask. Right. And that's, that's 50% of the battle, right. Is knowing who's going to have the answer to the question that you're trying to solve. Right. And it's connections and, you know, 
working with these people, working with the consultants, you know, having an energy consultant come onto the team as part of your project so they can look at it and say, hey, you know, this looks like it could be kind of a wet assembly. What if we put a, you know, rain screen on here and now boom, all of a sudden your wood siding is lasting however many years more, you know, and it's just a matter of connecting all the dots together and really carefully thinking about all of it. And, you know, you, Maybe part of the reason you think this way, um, my dad is a dairy farmer. And so I don't know if it's like a weird thing about farming where you just like, you think about so many other things, right? He's a dairy farmer in Pennsylvania. They grew hemp because the dairy industry is like, it's a tough industry. It's not always up. Right. And so you've got to have some other way to continue to, to do this. They've got land, they grew hemp, they, you know, they, they have other, other things as well too, but it's just like, you use all the parts of the things that you have, right. And you're just really resourceful with the, the stuff. And so maybe that's giving you this and like, I don't know if it's the same in the Midwest, but in Pennsylvania, where I grew up, it's like, they all know each other. They all help each other out. You got to bring in a crop. Somebody needs to do something. They're coming over. They're helping you. They're doing whatever, right? Like it's your cousins, so-and-so, and can you come help with the, you know, it just, it's an amazing community that I feel like you're really bringing to the building industry on your project, right? It's like, Hey, we know these people, we know the community, we're going to help the community out. Hey, we're going to, you know, here, I'm going to give my hand to this guy who lives next door. Who's going to, it's, it's fun and it's rewarding to see that, you know, and the way, and, and again, I don't know if it's the farming community in your background or if it's just Vermont, right. Or, or, or how exactly it, it, it comes together, but it's, it's sort of, you know, like you said, it's a feel good project. Like it makes you feel good. Right. Like at the end of the day, you're going to be happy. The builder's going to be happy. The architect's going to be happy. The local community is going to be happy. Right. It's just this, this great in a world of things that aren't always so great. This feels like a great thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think we're all really excited about it. Like, yeah. And my builder said something the other day, he's working you know, he's got a lot of projects on his plate and he's just like, they're kind of the complete opposite of what you're doing. They're just kind of imposing upon a landscape or imposing upon an old Vermont farmhouse, what they want it to be. And I think Bob has really helped me just be like hands open. Like what, what is this land asking of us? Like, what is this place asking of us? What resources are available that we can tap into that may not have been my preference at the beginning, but now I'm absolutely in love with. And so it's just been, it's been fun to um, see. And I think at, at the end of the day, it's going to be a much simpler project than I imagined it to be just because um, it, it really is moving in a very elemental direction, just highlighting just really beautiful natural materials. I mean, it doesn't get much better than, you know, local wood and plaster walls and you know some slate or that kind of thing just in the bathroom like that's it you don't need anything else other than that so um it, it I'm really excited to see how simple it becomes yeah it's really exciting and have you have you camped out on the spot where you're gonna build it yet that feels like a very like Bob over his tent and like set it up and be like what sounds does it make at night when I camp here? <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely need to do that. I um, I have not done that. One of the uh, interesting pieces is we're actually building it on a small class three wetland. And so um, it hasn't been totally appealing for me to, to camp in the wetland at this point yet. <laughs> so, so, you know, I will, maybe I'll get a little platform going um, and do that, but I definitely need to. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was great to hear about your project. And I uh, think that you might be on several more times throughout this process, because if anybody who listens to this is like me, I just want to know more. I want to know what happens. I want to know how it comes together. I want to talk to you after construction to hear about all of that. And, you know, I just 
love that you were willing to come and talk about it and say, Hey, I'm doing this cool thing. Like, do you want to hear about it? Um, so I really appreciate you taking time out of, I'm sure what is your busy day? You just said you're a farmer. It's probably like prime planting season and (laughs) you took time out of your day to just hang out with me and talk about your project. And I really appreciate that. Yeah. Well, I'm so honored to be here. It was and I'm grateful that Bob asked and I, I will do just about anything that he asked me to do. So, um, and I'm so grateful to finally meet you. I've heard so much about you. Thanks for tuning in for season three of the podcast. If you want more information on the guests, check out the show notes. If you want to contact me with a question, a comment, or a suggestion for the show, reach out emily at matramarch.com. You can find me on Instagram, matramarch, or on LinkedIn, Emily Matram. And you can find me on Thursday nights at the BS and Beer Show. So come join us live one week. Until then, stay nerdy. Stay nerdy.